then I had one lecture slide that I used to roll out year after year, first year law, which was all about these snippets of law that we've talked about, what the surveyors need to know, a bit on contract, a bit on negligence, a bit on blah, blah, blah. And whether they wanted to know about it or not, because it was a law class, they got told who were the first women lawyers. Because I thought I'd ram this down their throats. Then I was sort of just googling around and I came across the first woman surveyor. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast. Podcasts for surveyors who just love what they do. I'm Marion Ellis and in today's episode, I catch up with Carrie De Silva. Many of you will know Carrie from her work as Honorary Professor at the Royal Agricultural University, a trainer at Sava, the Surveying School, her books and writing contributions on negligence, but also her work and research on the first female surveyors. So grab a brew, take the dog for a walk, or jump into the car for your next inspection and listen in. Oh, and don't forget to check out the podcast show notes, which are also available on the Love Surveying website. Welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to chat to you. And to you, Marion. And I've been, it's been a little while, but I've been trying to get you on the podcast for a little while to have a chat. And I know you're super busy, but also I'm terrible at forgetting <laughs> what I'm doing and what I'm up to. So it's really good to uh, have you on. And, and we know each other from our, our Blue Box Partners Days. But could you, for listeners who have no idea who you are, explain a bit more about what you do and uh, and, and take yeah. it from there? Because you're, you're not a surveyor, but no, you're very <laughs> useful to us as surveyors. That's what I'd start with, really. So I've been teaching chartered, prospective chartered surveyors for well over 20 years. My background is as a, an academic lawyer and before that in tax law. So I graduated in law a little late. I was a slightly mature student, having sort of been abroad and sort of not really done O&A levels at the right time. Went into office work, did O&A levels in the evening, did a straightforward law degree full time. So I didn't graduate till I was 27. And then I went into the sort of corporate world. Arthur Anderson, what was one of them, the big five equivalent to PwC for, for younger listeners, one of those sorts of sort of did taxation and tax law. When I've had children, I'm still in that world, but I'm morphed into teaching because I'm morphed into, although I was full on for the first year or two of my oldest, my son's life, that was all a bit too much. And all you lovely young people that get sort of maternity leave and paternity leave and all the good stuff, you know, 30 years and more ago, it was a slightly different picture, particularly if you were in the professions. Anyway, we've moved, we've moved some way forward on that. So I moved into teaching and then I found myself teaching prospective chartered surveyors over 20 years ago, almost by chance. It was just the advert that wanted a law lecturer that suited me. I apparently suited them. I came into the resid, more into the residential because I was largely teaching prospective rural surveyors, land agents, Harper Adams University, actually. And I came into more the rural world, really by quite a fluke. Obviously, rural is a funny area because we they, they cover, obviously, agricultural, but residential and commercial property as well. So it was like quite a little background of the sorts of legal issues they wanted. I actually wrote an article on the history of surveying education 
obviously being at a university, I'm interested in education, surveying, literally going back hundreds of years through to when they started accrediting in the 19th century, not only the RICF, but all the other different surveying groups that have, many of which have been absorbed into the RICS over the 20th century. I wrote that article and I was seen, the article happened to be seen, one of those serendipitous things by a name that will be familiar to many, if not all listeners, and that was Chris Rispin. And he just happened, right desk on the right day at the right time in front of the right man, he happened to be looking for somebody to help um, in the new incarnation of the residential surveying course, which is run by a Salva. And so I got involved at the beginning of, there'd been various courses on various things for the sector before, but in 2014, I got involved in that and I, there I still am. I mean, it started with, would you be able to manage two or three days a year? Because it was only more or less one group going through and we now, we now have significant numbers of groups. And as Marion said, that was initially done through a company which had other strands and predated that by a long way, but it was Blue Box and they were predominantly, not exclusively trading providers. And I got into, I got in, in there. So that was my introduction to the residential world, but I'm still very much the law and a little bit, um, not so much on this course, but with other courses, taxation. And I still do, I'm still involved with the rural the rural universities, I have since, I sort of dodged between Harper Adams and the Royal Agricultural University. And I'm a professor of real estate practice law with Siren Sester. That's the Royal Agricultural University. That's a professor without portfolio, really. I'm a kind of visiting professor. And I still do a bit of uh, visiting lecturing at Harper Adams on the postgraduate, respective rural surveyors that are postgrads. So they've found they found the lovely world of surveying a little bit later on. And of course, also very much with the residential surveyors through Saba and other and training solutions, you know, doing bits of CPD and and whatever. So that's that's really where I come from and what I'm doing on the the day-to-day -day stuff, really. My main my main work. Oh, there's so many questions. What an amazing, varied career because I know you you do you specialize in equine law well I don't well, specialize or... in equine as such as such that's uh, horses in, in the, the non-rural fewer <laughs> urbanites uh, not that you don't get horses in town funny I should say that because I've just been typing about the best mounted police women and they were obviously in, in town anyway bit of a tangent no because being very much in Originally, until I, until Blue Box and Saba discovered me, I was very much in the rural land-based sector. Obviously, horses are something that are around. People are managing land for horse use, selling and valuing property for equine use. So you're sort of living in those circles. And just on a CPD level, not on any accredited level, I've been running equine law seminars, sort of one-day seminars. So either in-house at the university or for anybody that would have me really. So I've done bits with the British Horse Society, some of the specialist insurance companies that deal with equine and agricultural property, actually the horse welfare organisations. So various people. So where people are dealing with horses, either personally as, as a hobby, as competitors, or indeed professionally, there's lots of aspects of law 
that they should be aware of, even if only to know, oh, crikey, this is where I do need to get further advice, you know, nick mm. problems in the bud. Do you actually like horses? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, I've ridden all my life only in a very small, you know, just recreational, recreational. Yeah. It's interesting. So various questions I want to, to ask you. You've had this sort of quite varied career and you just explained, you know, taxation, equine law, rural, residential. How, and perhaps a sort of different in law, but I, I sort of see similar with surveyors where they get involved in different types of work. How do you, say, jump about or, or evolve? How do you know you're ready to talk about equine law? How do you know you're ready to talk about different well, things? Equine law qualifications? Or? Of, equine law is a bit of a misnomer. I told the same thing about to everybody. So if you look at the areas of law that people running an equine business need to know, or residential surveyor needs to know, obviously there are bits I draw out, but we talk about, you know, negligence. Well, the framework's the same. When I've got a room full of residential surveyors, I might be specializing and drawing on examples of our lovely negligent valuation, of which I've written a whole little case book. There are so many cases, but that's nothing against valuers because any subject you pick, you could do that. So, you know, the frameworks of contract law, the frameworks of negligence, pies liability, maybe some employment law, all the different things that people need to know in these sectors are similar. And also then getting towards more specialism, it's all pretty much, I would say, the land and property sector. Yeah. So, yes, I've got little bits of areas where I've delved deeper that I wouldn't say with the rural people that I wouldn't if I wasn't dealing with rural or obviously residential. I particularly, I mean, not to keep dwelling on the valuation, but I picked that up more than I had done before when starting to work with the residential surveyors. But mm. if you list the subject areas, yes, there are some special bits. So, I mean, there's a load of stuff on the Animals Act that clearly I don't do with the, uh, with the surveyors. Although with the residential, it's actually kind of interesting though, because it is all land and property, the rooms full of resi valuers that I've been teaching through Blue Box and Sava, there's always somebody in the room that has other interests and those other interests and experience might be more commercial property. It might be more in planning and development. And it's surprisingly often some of them you find so. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see this with a lot of surveyors that I come across is, you know, you might start on a commercial or rural path, but then your career takes you into residential and the market changes and you move back to something else. Or, and so how surveyors define themselves or what they call themselves can really evolve over the, the course it, of a career. It's interesting you should say that, Marion, and it's, I mean, that's what's kind of interesting about the qualification because mm. it gives you this scope because you don't do a separate qualification. You might need separate short courses to give you particular technical information, but once you're a surveyor, you're a surveyor or an ASOC or RSES or whatever it might be. And, and I know you qualify through specific routes, but the actual qualification, you don't have to qualify as a chartered surveyor again. When we had it, it was particularly outstanding when the, the last big recession, the sort of 2008 period, and on our postgraduate course at the university, we got 
I mean, I won't say a, a waterfall, but certainly a trickle, quite a quite a few over a few years of commercial surveyors. It's suddenly their world had fallen apart and they were requalifying. So they were already chartered surveyors, but they were doing a small number of modules saying, actually, we're really interested in the rural side and we'll do that. And as you say, things change with the markets, the economic cycle, people's personal interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like anything, you can, you've got to make sure you're, you've got the technical ability to do whatever it is. That's the the starting point. Many surveyors will have heard you speak at different events or attending your, your training where you talked about negligence and all the different, different cases. One of the things I've often found confusing is understanding case law and sometimes Something that happens in one part of the law sets a precedent for something that happens in a different sector. And some cases are brought because of one particular reason, but it has implications for others. It's quite hard to keep track unless you're really interested and have the mind like yourself. But with a lot of, so that really is a point for anybody out there who gets bamboozled with all the different ones you think you need to remember. You're not alone. But what do you think surveyors could be doing? On the one hand, yes, it's be as technically competent as you can be and CBD and those things. But do you think surveyors need to have a better understanding of law? Is there anything in particular you think that they should be doing? Or Because you, you train and learn and get qualified and you might know a bit of law and then people forget it. You know, and, and for me, it feels like something to keep plugged in regularly, not just the latest hot and large case or whatever comes up, but having a good understanding because a lot of it's about context. Yeah. We can very easily panic about the next case and the next case that comes. But we've got to look at the picture as a as a whole and understand the landscape of the world we're working in. Well, I think you raise quite a few points. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, one case law is kind of difficult to to understand quite how it operates until you're a bit more immersed in it, really, because People learn case law, and I hope I try and get this over in my own classes. But you sort of learn, oh, there's, well, there's some laws from legislation and some laws from cases. But cases are not just an alternative to legislation. They operate completely differently. And I do find sometimes, not just surveyors, I mean, just people treat cases as if they're legislation. Oh, the law is that the margin on ordinary property is 5%. Well, that's a guide that was in a case. You can find other cases. It's likely to be followed because you can find cases similar, but there's always room for it to be distinguished. There's always room for it to be altered and what have you. It's not like a bit of legislation that sets section one, 5%. That's it. Full stop. Yeah. So I think that kind of way it operates is something. Keeping on top of case law. Yeah. I mean, you could go mad because there's always things, certainly at the lower levels and you hope if you read your press in whatever sector you're in, you pick up the main ones. I mean, you mentioned Art and Large, which I think the whole residential sector pretty much knows about, not least because it went to the Court of Appeal, but largely because a couple of almost unrelated to the negligence. I mean, it would have been a straightforward negligence case had the damages not been decided in a slightly unusual way. And of course, had, had Mr. Large been fully insured, 
Mm. It, it just got dealt with and we wouldn't have really heard all about it. So that was as much a lesson for the surveyors as, as the negligence. In terms of keeping on top of the cases, yes, you want to keep on top of the main cases. But I think what you also said was very important, Mary, and it's the framework. And I think that perhaps does need reminders. And that's what CPD's about. You know, you're not going to go and redo your your course on basic tort law every year. It's not necessary. But actually keeping in mind that overall framework of not what is negligence as much as thousands of cases. What the new cases do, of course, is put things in a very practical context. So as well as the actual detailed legal reasoning, I'm sorry to harp on about heart and large, but it's fairly recent and it's one people will know. It just reminds you, well, what were the practical things that caught the, the surveyor out? A very experienced surveyor and expect surveyor that had no real problems before. Nobody was saying, as is sometimes said in these negligence cases, this is clearly somebody who is incompetent and shouldn't be in practice. Nobody was saying that about Mr. Darwin. But there were little, you know, little alarm bells, queries that the clients had raised that he didn't follow up on, that he looked shoddy. I guess those practicalities of how you go about your, your work, I think you can get really useful lessons from the cases from that because they are, by definition, a particular scenario. You know, this is what, this is somebody that went out, they've now been found negligent. Well, what did they do? Almost getting away from the, oh, well, you've got to establish a duty of care, breach a duty of care, the legal framework, which I think, yeah, people do need a periodic reminder of that. But I think they're useful for practitioners for the sort of stories behind them and what you can do to... I, oh, this is this is so true. And I talk to a lot of my clients and and surveyors about and just like I said, you know, you can be very technically competent, but it's, you know, how you apply it. But also it's the whole service that you're you're offering people, you know, even your upfront marketing, setting expectation, the sales conversations you have, the way that you interact with people. There are lots of different things that can help you spot a risk you know a risk of something going wrong at the earliest opportunity if you're looking for it and the and and it should be you know i've delivered my service to my client have they got everything that they need to know to make an informed decision because if a client is not asking you questions if they're not querying things if you haven't built that in you're more likely to have a problem and so that whole customer journey however fluffy people think it might be you know is 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 vitally important as you were you were talking there about there about big cases a member at blue box we had a cpd day that we did and we did a little quiz like a case law quiz i don't know if you remember and we had some cases and you found the locations and we had some pictures of the location. Well, it wasn't me. Was it? No, no, the pictures. Oh, no, no, it was, it was, it was, it was Phil as well, wasn't it? So, yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. And it's the, it's the whole sort of story around it. And some of those stories are great. There was one, I think, I think you had shared a picture to do with a slug in the beer bottle, was it? Or the ice oh. cream? Well, well, yes. I mean, that, the story of that, of course, and many listeners will be immediately on that because if you've only done law for about five minutes, it's one of those core cases. The, the foundation of modern, not the foundation of negligence, which is sometimes wrongly said, which irritates me. Because if I might say, when I was writing something on negligence a few years ago and I really went into it for a journal paper, I found cases dated 13 in the 1300s. 
wow. with similar principles. But Donoghue and Stevenson, 1932, House of Lords, was involved a snail in a bottle of ginger beer, crown cap, so the, the, you know, the cafe serving it had no interference with it. And it was sort of the basis of modern consumer law and just exactly do you owe a duty of care to. But it just adds that that bit of colour to it, knowing the story. And that's, that draws on the point that you said. You've got this random case. Physically, it took place in Paisley in Scotland in the 1920s. It's about, you know, cafe serving ginger beer. And yet that is the basis for who, is your, who, do, who you owe duty of care to in, in, a, in wider contexts. It was quite, well, I, the stories, they're the stories that bring it to life because we all remember the story about the slug. Not necessarily the case name, but even so, we remember it. And I think, oh, I think also I remember with that quiz that we did. So we had pictures of like the location or the house, and it would it was link it to the actual case law. And we had one and off the top of my head. I can't remember which case it is, but it's probably good that I don't mention it because we put in the photo, and we emailed it out to people, and then the person. So when was involved, we had the wrong house because Google. Robertson Smith Lampson, eight, and the surveyor was who had been found negligent was still, nearly thirty years later, working for the same firm, and he and he very kindly told us we got the wrong house, and he even more kindly sent us a picture of the right yes. house, which is, yeah, I've done. I've brought that one up before. Oh, yeah, that was hilarious. You think you know everything and then Google Street View <laughs> it gives you a problem. Yeah. Something you said about the, obviously, knowing these cases and when, you know, when you're sitting at your desk or working with your client, you know, where is the exposure and all that? It also leads to something a bit, sort of bit relates to what we were talking about with the equine bill bits and bobs that I do. Because sometimes certainly students and even qualified surveyors sort of, dare I say, lays over a bit when it gets a bit more is it oh well do we really need this isn't this what the lawyers do you know I can't understand these difficult words and all that and also the other point you made surveyors of value as are dealing with loads of different subjects you can't possibly be absolutely on top of all the planning law and all the law in this area and that area but I see the role of, of law some of it is 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 cool. You know, you need to know how not to be found negligent. But a lot of the wider law that we teach, you know, the, some of the land law, restrictive covenants, easements and all this, it's almost so that you can seed the questions with your client. You're, you're, you know, you're saying, make sure you don't buy this property until you check that out. You know, this is the question to ask your lawyer. And I mean, heart and large again, that was one of the things that came up in there where there were things that I, I mean, I can't know what Mr. Mr. Large was thinking of, but I, one suspects it was, the, well, that's a sort of law thing when he was asked, had he told the client about professional consultant certificates, with, which would with, be with builders and architects guarantees. And, you know, you think, oh, well, that's the lawyery stuff. And the lawyer, by the same token, I think, had thought, oh, well, if there's a problem with the property, the surveyor will pick it up. And there were various things that neither did. And the lawyers were just as negligent as the surveyor in that case, I hasten to add. And in, and as were the architects, as were the builders. And, and it's a great, you know, it's a great um, way of looking at it because actually we all need to be working together holistically for yeah. the clients and not in silo as much as we as we are. Terry, I wanted to ask you about the work that you do, a bit about your writing and the, the work that you do in terms of 
empowering or, or championing women. And as you were talking about your career so far, even though I consider you to be super posh compared to me, you talked about taking some time out and being a mature student, which lots of people can, can relate to. You know, your, your career evolving, you know, with having children and moving into different type of work. So I think no matter how different we might feel, many of us have a, a similar journey or things that, that resonate. Tell me a bit about your, your works. I know you've written some books on first women and you're involved in all sorts of women related things. I can put it that way. Well, I am. Well, what I've found, again, this sort of snowballed really. First of all, I'm also very interested in history as well as law. And I have to go, I did a master's degree in history part time, sort of evening classes at the local university, which was Keele. And so I've always been interested in history and all that. And then I did an abandoned PhD on the history of agricultural education. The PhD didn't get completed, but there's, a, there's an online ebook and a book that sort of came out of it. Then I had one lecture slide that I used to roll out year after year after year, first year law you know, which was all about these snippets of law that we've talked about, you know, what do surveyors need to know, a bit on contract, a bit on negligence, a bit on blah, blah, blah. And whether they wanted to know about it or not, because it was a law class, they got told who were the first women lawyers, because I thought I'd ram this down their throats. So, you know, the first woman, solicitor, barrister, judge, Supreme Court. Well, when I first started, we hadn't got a, you know, it was so long ago, we hadn't got a woman in the Supreme Court. But anyway, there we are. Then that, of course, I was sort of just Googling around and that's how I came across the first woman surveyor. A lot has, an awful lot has been done on the first women lawyers, particularly in the last few years. The centenary of women qualifying in most professions was 1922, stroke 23. There was a, 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 a bit of legislation in 1919 that allowed women to enter the professions. Medicine aside, because medicine they'd been in since the 19th century, but women were actually prohibited from being lawyers until then. We're not sure about surveyors. There's no record of anybody applying. They could have applied. Things get lost. We, do, we don't know. But anyway, once the act was through, we got a first woman surveyor. So then I sort of did this list, which has now hundreds of names. It's not, it's not a book. It's online. It's an e-thing. But it's, it's, it's. As I say, there's hundreds of names of women first. And a lot of them are in the professions and, and legal positions and what have you. But also in, you know, just out of sheer interest and whatever. So, you know, the first woman to set a million records or, you know, just random things, sporting achievements, organizations, various, various things. So that was that one. And then that led me to a bit more deeper work on the first woman surveyor, particularly because she hadn't been done much done that's an awful word isn't it she hadn't really been studied so much now the exciting thing about the first woman surveyor well there are several exciting things if i can lead on to this point at this juncture marion firstly she wasn't just a surveyor and i use that word just not to do any offense to any surveyors but my goodness she qualified in 19 so, so, and, and just for those listening it's irene barkley irene bark irene it's actually Irene. Irene. It's pronounced oh, okay. Barkley. Bar I only knew that recently, Marion, because you've heard me call, call her Irene. Well, I've got Nancy Irene, you see, that's why. 
Yeah, no, no, we know. Okay, I've since met family members actually and other people that knew her. But anyway, she qualified as a chartered surveyor, but she did government commissions. She was doing radio broadcasts. She was working at national level, and she was running private practice. Her her sector was housing, so actually in her sector as such, she wasn't groundbreaking because there'd been women in housing management from the nineteenth century sometimes called the Octavia Hill system. Octavia Hill, now better known for being a found, co-founder of the National Trust. Anyway, she came through that housing, women women housing management system, but very few went on to qualify as chartered surveyors. She'd, had a, she'd got a degree. She studied history at the University of London, Bedford College, the Women's College. And so there we are. What was I going to say? Oh, yes. She was in private practice. She was also what is now called, what used to be the St Pancras Housing Association. Oh, it's now called Origin Housing. And that was, it wasn't the first, but it was one of the early housing associations. She was involved in in slum clearance. She refurbished, first of all, but found that was just a dreadful job. She preferred to demolish and rebuild. And we're talking in the area to the side of Euston Station, Somerstown. And there's a little museum now, Somerstown, covering wider history, but also Irene Barclay and the others. Nobody ever remembers the second woman to qualify. And I wish I hadn't said that because I've forgotten many. <laughs> Evelyn Perry. Evelyn Perry. And I oh, recently found a great quiz. <laughs> I recently found a picture of Evelyn Perry because fabulous. it doesn't just come up on Google like it does for Irene Barclay. And I found a picture in some of the old St. Pancras minutes and magazines. So there we are. And she was secretary of the St. Pancras Housing Association from 1925 to 1972. Wow, good grief. He was in business for over 50 years and had two children, a husband who was politically active and, yeah, very interesting person. There's a couple of things there. Firstly, Thank you for sharing that, because I know lots of surveyors out there might not know about Irene Barclay or Evelyn Perry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a couple of things that come to mind, and some of this may not be for you to to answer. But I've, for a long time, for lots of different reasons, RISS doesn't seem to have talked about women. You know, you talked about all the other professions, almost sort of showcasing role models if I can put it that way and what we don't know is whether Irene wanted to do that or not to do that whether she was involved in championing women or she just wanted to get on with, with doing she was job. involved in championing women I'm not sure through the RICS or not mm. I have no way but in general she was and there's actually I've got letters that she wrote for instance, to her old college principal, that you know she was disappointed that she couldn't, because she had women working for her, both yeah. in private practice and the, you know, the housing association, and she actually expressed disappointment that more wouldn't get. They qualified as housing managers, but they wouldn't go to the next stage. Which, by the way, at one stage was through the RICS. I mean, the Institute of Housing Management. As I'm sure you know, that's an institute mm-hmm. in itself. But at one point, they got these these housing managers qualifying through the RICS or the SI. It wasn't royal in the early 30s yet. And she was disappointed and she did try. She also was quite keen 
I mean, on the one hand, she wanted to champion women, and we've got evidence of that. On the other hand, she was very keen on not being called a woman surveyor. And she said, I'm, she did an awful lot of work, particularly post-war, on boards. Not, I mean, things like the, the gas board and things, sort of senior senior board role. And she kept saying, I hope I've not been chosen as the token woman, although I suspect I have. You know, she was said, I want to be chosen as me as a surveyor, not as a woman surveyor. So, And, you know, doesn't that resonate? And I'm sure many women listening to this will absolutely resonate because even myself, the experience that I've got with surveyors and claims and complaints and, and all I ever get asked to do is to be on a DNI panel, talk about women. And I'm, you know, whilst I'm known for the love surveying and the surveyor hub, I'm largely known for women in surveying, which is a small little project I did about, you know, five years ago. And I just think it's, it's quite sad. But on the one, and you know, I mean, how long ago was Irene talking, you know, talking about this? And yet we're still not owning the fact that we are women and we're allowed to be women and what we bring and some of the challenges or positives that we face. And I think it's a really difficult, and there's no silver bullet or solution. We just have to accept where we are in that on the one hand, I often hear people talking about drawing a line to the past. We've got to move forward with diversity, equity, inclusion. But so many women, you know, their experiences have been, you, you, even not so long ago, you didn't have maternity rights. A lot of women weren't allowed to work after they had their children. You know, you've got the whole later life menopause thing where women sort of drop off the scale. And even the most recent data that I've seen on a professional membership of RICS is the average membership for a man is something like 29 years and for a woman it's 16. We have to look at why that is. And that's, an, that's an interesting stat. I yeah. haven't heard of that Yeah, and it's, you know, there will be lots of reasons for that. We just need to keep on talking about it so that we don't forget and so that we can improve and, and move forward. And it is a divisive subject. You know, I've been told... You know, I'm excluding other people and they can choose to, to feel that way if I'm, because I support women. I have a small women only group and I'm not excluding them. I'm just saying sometimes we need to speak out as, as a woman and the experiences that we have and other people can, can do the same. These are just some of the things that, that I, that I see. So it's interesting to see that even back then, Irene Barclay was talking about the same thing. Yeah. Which is, um disappointing mm. i think in terms of you know we think we progress but have we really well, of course, surveying is a funny one isn't it i i can't quote you the latest stats but when i was sort of doing some of this work so the latest stats i'd got are probably 2019 20 and i think it was 17 one seven percent women and i yeah. no, i mean law is more than 50 percent women at intake Medicine is more than 50% women at intake. I know it's a, a triangle. I mean, veterinary science is something like 80% female. There's no, no, no other of the big professions, I think. I mean, engineering, of course, is a, is, yeah. But certainly finance, law, medicine, you know, if you look at the, the professions, none of them are so low. I know it is improving. Yes, um, and, and I think that's the thing. You know, I hear you know, anything between 14% and 19%, but it's oh, yeah, all about, it's, it's all about the data. Mm. You know, if they've got the data, if people are declaring their gender, which obviously people don't, don't have to do. 
but also I think, you know, what's encouraging, and I've, I've seen this, that some people talk, I've said this, 35% or 40% of new recruits are female, which is great. But then you think on the other end of the, the scale, how do we stop them disappearing? And also I think that's in part, not just the whole challenges or not the and opportunities that, that women face, but also as our careers develop, you know, very often we come away from the technical side of doing the job to more management or training or supportive type roles. And, you know, what is a surveyor anymore when multiple disciplines do multiple different things with under one professional membership? And I went through that with my own journey with that. When I became a fellow, it was almost a, am I a real surveyor anymore? <laughs> Marion, you know, and, and it's how we all, we all define it and yeah, move forward, you know. What I'm quite interested in is looking at when you talk about, obviously, intake has improved, and that's the case, and I mentioned other professions where it's a higher proportion of women, but it's still a triangle. You know, there's, there's far fewer women as you go up, 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 up. Obviously, there's fewer of everybody, but proportionately more men. I, I mean, and I think that's, that's for several reasons, some of which impact men as well and are not particularly healthy. Because there's been overt discrimination and, you know, yes, a woman mm -hmm. goes, they, the interview panel don't think they're suitable or how are they going to manage the children and all that nonsense. I think, maybe I'm naive, that much of that has gone. But I think there are two or three reasons why either women are not even putting themselves forward. And this is a really interesting one. I went to a, a sort of senior academic event where there were talks from VCs and things who were relatively low percentage of women or vice, cha vice chancellors or even, even professors. And women aren't applying. It's that old, that old chestnut, you know, if it says you need 10 skills and you've got nine of them, oh, I don't qualify for that job. Whereas a man will give it a go. There is a lot of truth in there. I know it's mm. you know, a bit hackneyed. So they're not presenting. I'm actually looking at some other things. Well, why aren't they presenting? Is it messages they've got from, you know, work? Or are there subliminal things? I mean, a lot of people have done this, you know, research on public, you know, commemoration of women in public spaces. This sounds a bit left field. But, you know, a tiny percentage of public statues are women compared to men. As you know, I'll be honest, largely just because it's, personally interesting because I like finding about the biographies of the women but also the serious point of women being visible in public spaces as you'll know I'm doing a women in street names project which sounds... where I'm, I'm, I'm looking at streets named after women streets not street corners just <laughs> named after women so the one the bit I really enjoyed doing just for pleasure is finding the I mean yeah, we, you know, Florence Nightingale Street or something. We all know who Florence Nightingale is. But there's lots of streets named after maybe women who were locally known, not nationally, mm. or women who were, it was named, you know, 100 years ago, we've forgotten who she is. So I like delving into the biographies. But again, huge, you know, huge mismatch in proportion gender-wise and that sort yeah. of public visibility. So women are not putting themselves forward for jobs for whichever reason. The other one is they're not putting forward for jobs because they don't want what senior roles bring. 
know whether yeah. that's senior political roles and you get all this online rubbish or other roles. Many other roles get a lot of online inappropriateness these days or the working hours. Yeah. And those things are inappropriate for men. Men are dealing with that. I mean, quite famously, you know, Britain is always quoted as having the longest working hours and the lowest productivity, you know, and certainly if you look at Scandinavian countries, I mean, this is very broad brush statement and, you know, sure could be picked holes in, but they do seem to have a better balance and men, women and men, you know, are not expected to be all hours. I mean, I, you know, the reason I told you I'm off into education, really, you know, you're still in the meeting at 10 o'clock at night and that's pretty common. Yeah. That those sort of, you know, city firm type firms, you know, nobody should be doing that. I think, I think you're absolutely it's, right. It's because me yeah. the women that, that opt out of it and say, I just can't take that role, even though I may well get it, because I don't want the whole, what goes with that. And we should be re-looking at work in general, not only for women. And then I, that, I absolutely yeah. agree. And I think COVID has, how had, the, we'll, we'll see the potential to really level and address some of that. I know certainly, you know, some men I know work in a very toxic masculine culture where you've got to be in early and you do stay late because that's the macho or the, the, the thing to do. But then with being at home, I know certainly my husband has seen more of my, my daughter than my son, you know, through, through, through lockdown, you know, when, when he was a, a, a similar age, but also it being much more acceptable to be yourself and be the dad or to be the parent at work. I mean, I remember being on a, on a call at seven o'clock at night and I'd had to put my, my son was little and I had to put him in front of some Power Rangers TV programs that, that he liked at the time. And I remember saying that on the call and it was literally like tumbleweed. Marion's talking about her kids again or whatever. Whereas, you know, now you see, when I think about the things my daughter got up to as my husband's on a, on a professional you know, work Zoom call and she comes in and puts, you know, things on his head and, and all sorts, you know, it's, and it's, it's normalizing those things for, for parents and, and everybody. And I think oh, some high you know, profile, you know, I mean, it was, yeah. it was done as a lighthearted way, you know, at the end of the news links, there were quite a few very high profile people. And there was that, you know, Zoom pictures of, yeah. you know, some minister or something and. There was, that, uh, there was that interview, let's see if I can put a link into it, of the, the guy being interviewed and then the little kid comes running through. I'll put a link to it. It was, was quite funny. I find it funny because the little girl's name was Marion. <laughs> it turned out. But, but I, think, I think you're right. It's, and this is where, you know, all of us can be an ally for each other to, to normalise because you're right. You know, we can't do what be our best if we're working those kind of hours and it's all about breaking a pattern of culture. I think visibility, absolutely. You know, and we often talk about, you know, female role models. And I saw a post on, on LinkedIn just the other day, and it had a picture of the RICS pre presidents, past and, and future, all, all women. And it said something like, yes, we've cracked it. I just thought, until my surveyor on a wet Tuesday in Margate feels included, no, we haven't. It's a start, absolutely, but it's by, by no way means fixed. And in terms of visibility, no one, I think there's a couple of things. No one has shown women how, you know, in terms of our confidence, opportunity earlier in your career, and then 
you know, as you get older, you've got different things that happen. Just like when you come back from maternity leave and you think about the first day, will I remember my computer password and remember what I do? You know, as a job, you know, we're not often supported in, in how to be visible. And the reason for that, and some of us do feel there's a tokenism there. I, mean, I remember the first time I had to stand up at a conference and speak to 600 surveyors. Nobody showed me how or get me support or training to do that. And yet it was, okay, Marion will do it, you know? And so sometimes it's a, uh, I guess that, I think we've got I mean, that might have been the same. I mean, that particular example might've been the same could, young man in the. Yeah. And it, and it absolutely could be, but this is also why we need to support people. Sure. And we also need to take responsibility for it to not just concentrate on the technical side of our job, but also look at the, you know, what awful description, the softer skills, yes. you know, in terms of our confidence and being visible and, you know, putting ourselves out there and asking for the opportunities. Yeah. And, and believe that we can do it. Yeah. 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 I agree with the last sentence. I think I'm a bit, oh, I shouldn't say this in the middle of a podcast, probably. I think I'm a, le- I don't say less tolerant than you. Tolerance probably the wrong word. I mean, I do kind of think work your way through or just do it in some instances. But I also, on the other side of that coin, yes, I think I think the role models and I think the good working practices that, I mean, some of the things you've mentioned would be for all, all people. I think what there is, and I do believe this, there is an intrinsic difference. And some, were, you know, Margaret Thatcher didn't need anybody to show her because she's just that sort of person. It's, you know, that's, some women just get through, as it were. But I think as a generality, there is that difference in like, the women not putting themselves forward because they don't think they qualify. There will be other men who don't tick all 10 yeah. boxes. They only tick nine. But in general, the men are more likely to say, well, I tick most of them. I will try for that interview. Whereas in general, the women are likely to say, oh, I'm not ready for that yet because I only tick nine and three quarter of the boxes. So I think that's where, where the differences are. And I think and that comes back to support through your career you know, and helping you feel confident. And there's nothing worse, I think, or frustrating when you have a role model out there who's clearly has, you know, has four hours sleep a night and will go off and run the country and sits there and says, well, I've got imposter syndrome. And it's just, and they may, they may well have, but it's not relatable. And you want to see the journey of how they, they actually got there. I don't know if you read, there's a really interesting Harvard Business Review report called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. Oh, no. Um, I'm going oh, to go. Yeah. One, one for you. I'll put, put the link in the, the show notes. And it's interesting because it explains the background to imposter syndrome and how that, how that came about. But it also talks about actually people don't feel welcome and included. And therefore, you always feel like the odd one out. And that can happen. I mean, I see it a lot for men. I see it a lot with surveyors in terms of their technical ability and how qualified somebody is. I see it certainly on a neurodiversity front, but there are practical things, you know, for, you know, if someone's not considered, you know, on a building site, how are you going to use the loo or shoved all the, you know, the storage materials in there? It's the little things that can make someone feel welcome and included and all of those things on your road to make you feel, well, I'm not good enough to be here 
And I think that imposter, I mean, that's what led me on to, as I say, the street names, which, okay, is half just interesting, but there is a serious point about this that we don't have examples. And I mean, I it was at this conference I went to some years ago where there were vice chancellors, you know, very senior women saying that, you know, they should have applied earlier or they know that women aren't. And that was maybe I'm not the best to speak to this about. <laughs> Because I, it hasn't been a big thing for me. I have worked in a lot of all-male environments and I just sort of plow on and, you know, I don't, I'm not terribly diffident. <laughs> so I think you probably know, Marion. But it was, a, it was surprising to me. And I know a lot of women are like that, but what surprised me was very senior women, you know, very senior women saying this had been an issue and they didn't apply for things or women just below professor, just below VC saying, oh, they're not applying because... And then I really did start to see, well, there is a gender, and I read more about this. And that's the sort of thing that I'm looking at, these messages, not just the street names and, and the statues, but as you say, other things in the workplace that can be done to give that support and the right message that people can, if they want. I mean, the other part of the it, point is I'm quite keen on getting the message out because I think there's too much, you know, Going back, and I'm quite a bit older than you, you know, people got, got a job and they were in it and it was fine. There's almost a, people are feeling guilty and, you know, they're not ambitious enough or they they haven't until they go to the next stage, which might be more pressure than they want. There are other things in life. And actually Absolutely. not applying. If you're not applying because you've, you've got imposter syndrome and you don't think you're ready for it and all that, well, that's just don't want depressing. to. But if you just don't want it, actually, I do want to, you know, get home earlier or work part time that that work for that job. And I think that is quite an issue nowadays that people feel they've got to go other than some sort of failure. I mean, I know some of some of it's are wider issues and money, you know, that goes with the, the bigger job and and the whole the whole picture of life. But I do think there's more pressure on that that people feel now, which I think we need to get away with. There is more to life than just work. Absolutely. Absolutely, Kerry. And it's all about how we define success. Yes. You know, are you, have you been qualified the longest? Do you have the biggest business? Do you earn the most money? Whereas, you know, we'd all like to be healthy, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. We'd like to see our, our friends and family and kids. And I think this is where understanding your values, what's important to you is really key because that gives you that, that grounding and so that you don't have to run for president or whatever it is you, yeah. you're encouraged to, to do and you can be happy and confident with it. And, and for those, you know, then looking at saying, well, how do we get women through the pipeline or forcing us, you know, square peg into a round hole? No, I wouldn't want to work all those hours and not see my kids, no matter how much support I had at home, you know, with an iron lazy and a cleaner and, and whatever, and I just don't want to do it. And therefore it all needs to change, but I absolutely see it has to change for, for men too. No, I mean, a very concrete example. I told you I was heavily involved with rural practice courses for, for many years, still am. The number of, the entry requirements are moderate. A-level wise, you know, you need some good A-levels, but you don't have three A's, let's be honest. The number of students, we didn't get many, but every year there were students with three A's at A-level, even A-stars, 
who were told their schools had really tried to put them off. Yes. Oh, with three A's, you could go and do law. or something. Law? All these schools think doing law is a success. The number of law graduates, they get training contractors through the floor. Then they're in jobs that they don't like because actually a lot of the law students don't like law. They're not doing it because they're interested in it. Schools and parents think it's a good job in inverted commas and it's lucrative if you go into the right branch. Not all law is lucrative. And we only saw the ones that got through all that that said, no, I want to be a land agent because I know about that as a profession. It's this lifestyle I want. And the days when land agents take me for the lifestyle are gone. They actually can turn, they might, they're not like the commercial guys and gals, but they certainly turn a perfectly reasonable living. And I thought, well, how many really good people are the schools putting off? Because they think these other careers are so-called, you know, better. And, and that's it, isn't it? It's great. And the surveying uh, in general, I would add to that. To yeah, yeah. I saw the rule. I think surveying in general, if they were coming with their A stars and A's at A level, schools would be directing them into law and finance. And they may not, they might be fine, but they may neither, you know, they may not be as happy. It may not be what they want. So I think that's something surveying in general needs to, to get over. And, and as we're recording this today, my kids are actually on off because their school's on strike. <laughs> I, I think that's a really important, important point, Terry. And I think I was asked Anne Gray's, you know, the new president's inauguration event a couple of days ago as we, as we record this. And she, in her, her, her speech, she talked about how some, I can't remember what the stat was, something like 80 or 90% of Gen Z, you know, wants better quality life work, meaningful work. And if you, can you imagine if someone with that high caliber three A stars went into nursing or social care or, you know, or surveying, you know, and, and the difference they can make at, at that, you know, and what the we look at at the moment do... seem to be not as great jobs, you know, it's a, it's they a can make issue, a difference for the whole profession and they can really mm -hmm. shine themselves. Whereas actually, if they go to, into law, you know, there's no guarantees and it's, you know, there's loads of other people because they, yeah. you know, they've all, it's, it's just, I think there's a lot of ignorance, the career. I mean, we've talked about this just off, off, mm -hmm. off, off podcast, you know, over these last years, haven't we? you know, the, the recruitment of people into surveying. And it's, I think that's certainly the scope and there are jobs there. I mean, all these other things that the schools think are great careers, there aren't the jobs there. And this is why we need to really be visible, yeah. show the kind of work we do, the difference that it makes. You know, I know RICS and others, I did a webinar recently on, again, I'll put a link to the show notes. There'll be good show notes, these, you know, on getting into schools or understanding what's, what's available. But if we don't talk about it, but also with meaning, you know, who would really want to work? If you tell the truth, how much you actually earn, the hours you put in, how miserable things are, how on earth does that, that inspire anyone? And so that's why I think we should talk about love surveying. <laughs> why we love what we do. <laughs> oh, Carrie, thanks ever so much for your time today. That's been a really interesting conversation and I'm sure people will get, get a lot from that. Thank you. Thank you, Marion. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Don't forget, you can find the links and notes in the show notes or on the Love Surveying website where you can also find the webinars for the hub sessions and also take a sneaky peek at the surveyor hub directory. Mm -hmm.